The Crux of the Matter, Episode 42, Church History. Hello and welcome to The Crux of the Matter, the show by pastors, for pastors. My name is Pastor Todd Peppercorn. And this is Professor Scott Stigmeyer. Good morning, Scott. Hey, how are you today? Well, uh, probably running a little bit less frantically than you, but uh, who knows? Um, yeah. I'm good. I'm good. Good. <clears throat> this but is a busy day. This is a busy day. I know you're yeah. you're on your way out of the out the door here pretty quick, aren't you? Yeah, I'm gonna fly to Fort Wayne for a conference where I'm gonna give a paper on frozen embryo adoption. Well, there you go. Yeah, That's, uh, not yeah. something you do every day, or at least not something no. I do every day. No, but it's something I've been working on every day for, <laughs> for quite a while. Right. So, uh, do you feel like you're you're inside a sci-fi movie or something? Oh, gee. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a strange new world. It is a strange new world. And I know we've talked about this uh, kind of thing in here before. So that's kind of what you've been actually teaching or preparing to teach this whole week then, basically. It's been – yeah. And, um, you know, my uh, my teaching schedule has actually been a little strange this week because for one of the classes that I teach, the Intro to Theology course, it's actually called Intro to Theo- Theological Thought, but – for that course, one of the things that we do is uh, have one-on-one tutorials with the students regarding their paper assignment. And I've got two sections in that class. So there's like 55 students and I had 15-minute tutorials with each one of them this week. And, you know, that actually adds up to quite a few hours of tutorials. But it really I, does. Yeah, yeah. But it was good. I mean, actually, it's kind of nice to have – because there are a lot of students who are pretty quiet in class and don't maybe talk to you outside of class and you don't see right. them. And so they're just a name for you, you know, on a roster. But right. when you have right. to do a one-on-one with the professor for 15 minutes to talk about your paper, um, you know, it just forces some interaction between the student and the, and the prof. And, and right. I think that just for that reason, it was worth doing. Sure, sure. But that is a lot of time, I'm going to guess. So yeah, it, yeah. So it's been an unusual week in that regard. Gotcha. Well, I have um, – uh, yeah, it's been it's been a relatively quiet week here at least compared to – at least compared to last week. Uh, I did uh, host our Winkle, our pastor's conference on Tuesday, which was a lot of fun. So we had it at our church. So I kind of re um, – I did our All Saints Day service again for them and sort of geared the sermon a little more toward the pastors, which was good. Uh, and then – and then this year in our Winkle, we are studying uh, Wilhelm Leia's book, The Pastor, which I'm pretty sure that I uh, chose as a joy bringer maybe a month ago or something. Uh, so I uh, I got to do a, a little introductory presentation on 19th century Lutheranism and, and who Wilhelm Leia was, etc. And that was really a lot of fun because um, – you may or may not remember that uh, that's what I did my STM on is is uh, American Lutheranism. So that's kind of stuff that I have uh, that I have worked on a lot, although not very much for probably ten years or more. So it was kind of dusting off some some books and thinking about some things that I haven't thought about as much recently. So that was actually yeah. quite a lot of quite a lot of fun. Yeah, I wish I could have been there for that. I um I don't I haven't read the Leia book and and I would like to learn a little more about him. 
Yeah, it's a it's a great it's a great book. I'm looking forward to reading it. We're we're getting this this one was just published. I mean, so it's basically a pastoral theology book. And then I think it's in 2017, Concordia Publishing House is releasing a study edition of Walther's pastoral theology. Um and and so we're kind of getting some some of these some of these works that I I personally think are quite quite germane to us as as pastors. I mean, this is kind of the what is a pastor? What does a pastor do? How do you make these decisions? It's kind of what we do here every week is think about this stuff. So sure. so yeah. it's uh it's a lot of fun. I really am enjoying reading it. And it, so we're going to read about I don't know 50 75 pages a month for the year and then we'll discuss those in our uh in our winkle. So that should be a good time. I'm I'm kind of kind of looking forward to that. I'm hoping that someone other than just me does the reading cuz it'll be more interesting if other people have read it too, but <laughs> we'll see. So it'll yeah. be good. Yeah. It'll be good. Yeah, I, w- I wish I could be in your winkle. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think you've That's got enough one. stuff to do. So I do. Um, yeah. I actually do. Yeah, so it's all good. But that kind of leads us into our uh into our topic for this for this week and that is the topic of church history because both of us are kind of doing church history stuff in different ways right now. And it's one of the topics that I I don't know, I think that as Lutheran pastors we pretty quickly set aside in our seminary education. You know, you think mm-hmm. about sure. what are the areas in seminary education? Um, probably the one that gets the books that get shelved and never to be looked at again the quickest are probably the church history books. I don't know. Do you think you think that's true? I do. I think that most pastors they may even if they like church history, they just may not see its applicability or its importance and they don't read it once they're not in classes where they're required to read it. Right. Right. So, and yet if you look at, at least when we were at seminary, I'm trying to think of how many required history classes we had, you know, early church, medieval church, reformation, um, modern, you know, modern church, one, two, three, four, and uh, Lutheranism in America. So we actually had five five required courses in church history. It's quite a lot. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and so I think it kind of begs the question of why, why should Lutheran pastors care about this stuff, especially when you have the, the continual press of urgency mm-hmm. sort of, uh, sort of facing you of, you know, I can either pick up this book on the the life of Thomas Akempis, or I can prepare my sermon for Sunday. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I wonder which right. one I'm going to do. So, I don't know. As a as a parish pastor, how did you how do you think that church history shaped what you did or do along the way? And then maybe well, like, ask, asking the other question of how how should it. Well, like you did, I think you did. I, um, you know, when we went to the seminary, you declared a area of emphasis, like a major. Mm-hmm. And my major, if you will, was church history. And right. so As I was liked, mine. I, 
So, and what that means is that you took a number of electives were going to be in the historical department. And so I, in my particular area of interest was early church. You were interested in 19th century Luther, American Lutheranism. And I was interested in, you know, second century uh, Syrian, you know, right. Or whatever. Right. And so, um, so, uh, so I took quite a few classes in church history when I was at the seminary. And I will say this, I will say this. I think that uh, one of the areas, I think it did benefit my preaching, or I think it, at least I'll say that it affected my preaching. Sure. Uh, let someone else discern whether it benefited it or not. Because, you know, one of the things you do in a good church history class is you wrestle with ideas. You know, right. you're not just wrestling with dates and, and factoids and trivia. You're wrestling with the great ideas of Christianity as they've been tackled and, and, and contested throughout the ages. And right. so... Those ideas are often ideas that are pastoral um, or, or have to do with the gospel itself, have to do with how the gospel is lived. And uh, so I think my Christology was, I, I hope, I believe my Christology, my understanding of Jesus Christ was deepened significantly by taking classes where you studied the heresies of the early church and the controversies of the early church. And that's going to show through in, in preaching. One's Christology is going to be what hopefully what one's preaching is is based on, centered on. Yeah. So I think it does it does affect even even without picking up another history book. But I hope that you know, and I do I do read church history, and I have continued to read church history through the years. But I think that just simply um, wrestling with the way the church fathers have have tackled things, and re, you know, reading sermons from from the ages um, can benefit how one exegetes a text yep. when, when you get to that. So I think that all that foundational work and hopefully it just carried continued on as I, as I served in my ministry. But yeah. what about you? What do you think is one of the benefits? Of well, one of the, one of the obvious kind of one of the obvious touchstones or benefits that I can see Scott is uh, is sermons you meant you mentioned that um you know preaching is i don't know it, it's hard to say what is the most important thing that a pastor does i think you could make a pretty compelling argument to say that preaching is the most important thing that a pastor does this is when he interacts with the most the the largest amount of his congregation on a regular basis this is um but, you know, this is this is the gospel. This is, you know, what is a pastor? A pastor is a preacher. That's that's kind of what we do. And so how that is how that is shaped is always going to be significant, I would say. Um, and uh, and I have pretty much always had the practice of trying to read good sermons on whatever the text is that I'm preaching on. And that's not always easy to find, but uh, but to try and find good sermons and to read good sermons historically, and that can mean patristic sermons, that can be Luther sermons, or or Gerhard, or modern sermons, whatever it is. Um, I think that that shapes your your thinking about a text as much as as much as anything does. So that's kind of one obvious segue, but maybe even. Just, just kind of stepping back and thinking about the from the pastoral care point of view, that there are few things that we deal with as a pastor 
that have never been dealt with before. Right. I mean, it's just, just there's <clears throat> struggling with with people who are grieving. You know, well, I am hardly the first pastor who has tried to uh, tried to figure out how to help people who are grieving. Um, but uh, you know, I'm not sure if I could find a patristic sermon on uh, on uh, frozen embryonic adoption, but uh, I bet you can find sermons on adoption. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> and and I bet you can find things on uh, that are going to deal with ethnicity, ethnicity and race. Mm-hmm. Um, that just about the whole gambit of the human experience is going to be it's going to be there because it is there in in our in our history. It's funny that you said that because actually one of the sources in my presentation that I'm going to give tomorrow is a, an, a, an, a sermon by St. Augustine in which he talks about adoption. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's in the epistles of Ignatius of Antioch and right. other places right. as well, but. Right. Yeah. So, so even when we're talking about what seem like brand new concepts or pastoral care issues that, uh, that kind of face us, even then, it's going to have ties to how it's been done before. And uh, I've always felt like as a pastor that I am, I, I am never a, I'm never a free agent. I'm, I'm never kind of, okay, I am now the independent source of all knowledge and, mm. and experience in this place. And what has happened here before has no bearing. Now, what I think is hard about that is that congregations have both long memories and short memories. Congregations have long memories about things that were sort of controversial and and were and were maybe difficult at the time but they but they also have short memories because those memories are very rarely going to go past the life of the congregation itself and so i i don't know i think a lot of times new pa- new pastor comes into a parish he's been you know he's been learning all of this great theological stuff and he's got a lot of ideas on what he wants to do and how he wants to go about doing it and all of this and then you get into this place that has that has real history, real life, real people. You're going to have people that actually may remember when such and such was. You know, I remember when we bought the butterfly that went on the cross because I was there. I helped make that butterfly. And it doesn't really matter, Pastor, if you don't like that butterfly because I helped make it 47 years ago. Mm-hmm. and And so I'm kind of – or the pastor is kind of stuck between his understanding of a broader history and the very concrete and specific life of the congregation where he's serving. And that's a I think that that's a very that's a very tricky uh that that's a difficult thing to navigate is trying to figure out okay how do I help this congregation see themselves as a part of something bigger while at the same time respecting and honoring their own history, even if I don't always like every individual piece of that history? Because that's a part of the messiness of history is that mm-hmm. history isn't systematics. History means that you're going to deal with what is, not with what you want it to be. <laughs> and that's a very different matter entirely, at least in my well, mind. I, 
Yeah, and I like I like what you're saying that the pastor, in a way, I always thought of myself, and I tried to fill this role. Although I I never had a long enough pastorate in one place to do this, um, but I always felt like the pastor needs to be sort of the archivist. He needs to be the 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 local uh, historian, or he needs to at least be able to identify who those people are, who can tell the right. story of that congregation in that place, and who can tell the different you know, the different stories. So that, and, and the pastor needs to collect those because I think they're part of the, you know, sort of the collective unconscious, if you will, of the congregation. Sure. They're part oh, of the no DNA question. of the congregation. And in order to serve well in a place, you have to have a, a real understanding of that. And that's just going to take time and listening to the same stories told over and over again. Right. Um, and that's going to give you a lot of insight, I think, about local customs, local attitudes, uh, that can perhaps help you avoid certain pitfalls. Yeah, yeah, and and I guess as a pastor, a part of what that what that also requires of of us is a tremendous amount of patience. Because once again, I can look, I can go into some place and look at something either uh, architecturally or let's say a pastoral practice how the how the eucharist is is cared for before and after the service let's give you a very concrete example i can look at this and say you know that's really not a good practice whatever whatever it is it's not a it's not a good practice to put the blood of christ into a trash bag after this after the after the service that's not that's not a good practice but just because I recognize that doesn't mean that everyone else does. And, and so I, I don't know. I think that there has to be a sense as a pastor that you have to teach history and teach a, a respect for what has gone before both the people that are there, but also the people that were there before them. Um, so that, so that when if I um you know if I go into an altar guild meeting for example and I'm going to teach about how to care for our Lord's body and blood uh, in and around the altar uh, I want to be able to do that from the perspective of okay this is how the church has tried to address this question what do we do for example what do we do with the host the communion host after the service okay well you know it's a that's a good very concrete question. That's something that is probably, uh, obviously, the church has dealt with that since the first time they had the Lord's Supper, how they made those decisions, why they made the decisions that they did on how to do it, or if there was any thought put into the decisions. <laughs> you know, that's going to vary widely from place to place. Yeah. But I come in and I got an idea. Right. And and maybe my idea, well, I'm sure that my idea is right, of course. <laughs> <clears throat> but but how uh, how do I how do I teach these these uh, pious and faithful women to understand how the the broader picture? That's the and and I think that that means teaching a sense of history that mm-hmm. we're a part of something much larger than ourselves. Now, of course, we just came off of All Saints Day, which sort of is is almost the. Uh, I think I would argue the church history Sunday, <laughs> if there is one. Um, 
you know, did you did you do much in terms of All Saints practices at your parish? We talked about that a little bit, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, I always did. I always felt that it was very important, and um, I probably I don't know if I did as much as some people did, but we certainly recognized it. We would have the reading of the names of those who uh, went to their reward during the the previous year, right? And uh, you know, told a bell whenever we did that. But as you can recall, the last church I served in Elmhurst, Illinois had this beautiful stained glass, these stained glass windows. Oh, yeah, they were awesome. And so I frequently had an opportunity to talk about the great cloud of witnesses and how we're part of a larger congregation. We are merely members of the body, you know, not not soloists, not entrepreneurs. And so I, you know, we we could look at the windows and the windows would tell a little bit of biblical history, a little bit of church history and a little bit of congregational history even. And so I was frequently making reference to those things to try to embed in our consciousness the sense that, you know, we're not just sort of, um, you know, spiritual and entrepreneurs, if you will. Right, right. Now, let let me ask you this, Scott. So have you taught classes in church history in like in Bible class? I I did one actual I've done, you know, little snippets here and there where sure. we would talk about Luther at Reformation or I would talk about some, you know, if we were on a saint day or if we were, you know, approaching uh you know, some significant moment in church history on the calendar, then I would I would just sort of use those as teaching moments, but um other than teaching Luther, I did do one series. Uh, mm-hmm. In my last parish, I did a series on church history. Actually, what I labeled it as was how did we get so many different denominations? Sure. You know, so it was more of a marketed more as a, you know, a different Christian, Christian groups. And but, you know, the only way to understand that is by understanding some church history. Absolutely. So yeah. when I talked about the why are there Eastern Orthodox churches? Well, let me tell you. And, you know, and what makes Lutheranism different from Roman Catholicism and or Wesleyanism or, you know, Methodism. And so I would, I would bring in, I did, it was essentially a church history course. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And uh, uh, what I think we tend to do is, is do church history by um, church history by soundbite. You know, I have a, I, I have a sense and maybe this is my own pietism, Scott. I'm not sure. I'm willing to, I'm willing to grant that, that this may be just me, but Sunday morning, I, I have this compelling sense that my Sunday morning Bible class ought to be about the Bible. Yeah. And which, you know, on the one level obviously is reasonable. But a part of what that does is, you know, at what point if I'm if I'm teaching a, a class on the history of the Christian church, am I no longer doing a Bible class and I'm doing something else? Now, again, that's not a good or bad, right or wrong, but... I do think that there is a there is a piety that says, well, if we're not actually directly interacting with a text, right. then then somehow what we're doing is not significant or is less pious or even less biblical. Um, so there's always a, I think that there's a tension there. Um, I've done classes on early church history on on uh, Reformation history, on all kinds of different things, but not generally on Sunday morning. You know, I've, I've done those as like weekday classes or, um, 
you know, we did a – I've certainly done classes on the book Concord and, very, you know, the different books of that, which is sort of half systematics and half history really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've kind of done it in different ways but it's always struck me that what what is lacking in in the sort of the broad catechetical curriculum in congregations is an understanding of church history. And and again, you look at what our seminary education looks like and then see, all right, so how did how is that reflected in the congregation? That's the big that's the big gap right there. I mean, I'll mm-hmm. I'll teach a, you know, I'll do doctrine, I'll do systematics, I'll certainly do exegesis, I'll do kind of topical studies, I'll do practical things. But but the history tends to tends to kind of fall by the wayside. It's it's an interesting it's an interesting question. Maybe we can try to try to wrestle that to the ground a little. Well, there's a lot of ways you could do it. I mean, you could do like you like you've done teaching uh, the Book of Concord stuff, and um, you know I've done like Heroes of the Church, right? Uh, you know, and and that's church history just by looking at persons, you know, great right. persons from from the past, right? And I mean, people generally generally are interested in that. It, you know, they they tend to find because then you can pick and choose, and, and you're going to get the you know some really interesting stories. And I always tell a few martyr stories from the early sure. church, the martyrdom sure. of Polycarp and others, right? And people find that to be Interesting. And then I will sometimes even use that stuff in sermons, but it just depends. You know, yeah. it'll, it'll, it'll just depend. But my, my sort of policy was on Sunday morning, I would use, I would usually do Bible study as Bible study. Right. But then when I A did my Tuesday, yeah, yeah. And then, and then Tuesday night when I would have another congregational Bible study, then I alternated. I would go a book of the Bible. And then the next week would be a topic. Mm-hmm. And of course, it would be related to the Bible. It would be, you know, sure. some There's theological be ties thing, in right? and applications, et cetera. But. Exactly, exactly. And then I would, so I would alternate and, and, and that seemed to work out well. And some people were more, you know, for whatever reason, were more interested in the topics and less interested in the Bible, but, which is discouraging in a way. But, <laughs> and other people prefer the Bible study and that was fine too. But I just felt it would give me an opportunity to talk about certain things that I felt needed to be discussed that just don't come up naturally in a, in a traditional Bible study. Yeah. I think it would be – and you know, again, you look at uh, – I am i haven't done this, Scott. So I'm going to – but I am willing to bet money that if you were to go to Concordia Publishing House's website or Northwestern's website, um, et cetera, I'm going to guess that that you would find – that there are pretty close to zero studies on church history that are available. Very so, little. Um, so I think that there's some work that could be done there. So if you get to work on that, Scott, and kind of write <laughs> me a curriculum for for introducing the entire history of the Christian church to my congregation, I'd appreciate that. That's what I'll do. All right. That's I'd like that I'm by Monday, at. please. Okay. Right. Um, that would be excellent. But in the meantime, we have other things that we've got to that we've got to do. Uh, and the first is that you can find show notes at thecruxofthematter.net slash podcast slash 42. If you know of any studies on church history that you think have been particularly beneficial for uh, a congregation, 
send them, send us some links or tell us about them. Uh, you can, you can write us at feedback at the crux of the matter.net. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, just type in crux of the matter or peppercorn or stigmire if you can figure out how to spell them. And I'm confident that you can, uh, that you can find us in fairly short order. So that would be, uh, that would be great. We'd love to hear from you. So Scott, what's bringing you joy this week? Pray tell. Well, in, uh, in line with our topic, and because I'm actually teaching a church history class next semester here at Concordia Irvine, in, you know, in which we will do 20 centuries in, right. in 15 weeks. And, um, and so in preparation for that, I've been just dusting off some of the books on my shelf and just trying to you know, fill in some gaps. And a, a, a little book that I picked up is, is um, something that I think pastors will enjoy, but it's also written for the lay level. And it's uh, a two-part series. Okay. And the first one is Know the Heretics. <laughs> <laughs> nice title. Know your heretics, right? Exactly. I love it. And so, yeah, it goes through the early church her- heresies, the he- different heretics, and talks about the controversies. and what the, But what I like about it is that, it, you know, it also gives – each chapter has a section on content, the contemporary relevance. So why are we, why does it matter that Arius was a heretic and what, what, you know, why was his teaching condemned and so forth? So it, it's, it's very well done for the lay person who's interested in theology. But there's a second one and uh, it's called Know the Creeds and Councils. And the same thing, you know, it goes through mostly early church, but that one goes up into, you know, like the Council of Trent and, you know, and some of the, gotcha. the documents that came out of the Reformation. And, and, uh, but it's just a great way. I think this could be a book discussion group right here. This could yeah. be a book discussion book. Know the heretics or know the creeds and councils. Now, like I said, it's not going to, it doesn't, it's not a pot boiling thriller. But I think that if someone who's in halfway interested in theology, they're not very long. They're, you know, under 200 pages long and the page size is small. So I recommend these highly. And, and you know, if you don't want to use it for a book study group, I think for a pastor to just kind of refresh some of that church history and understand some of those things a little better, more clearly, these are great texts. Cool. Very cool. We'll have uh, links to that in the show notes. That would be excellent. Um, my, my joy bringer this past week – is a movie, and the movie is The Martian. I think nice. uh, some some weeks ago, or even months ago, uh, I uh, I had as my uh, joy bringer the book The Martian by Andy Weir, and this is a movie that is based on that book that uh, came out. I actually think it came out maybe six seven weeks ago, something like that. But I finally got to see it this past uh, this past week. Uh, Matt Damon is the uh, is the the main actor in it, um, and it is a great movie, Scott. It really is fun. Um, is it a must see? It is. It is kind of a must see. Um, there's a little bit of uh, there's a little bit of language, but in, in the kind of the global scale of Hollywood, it's really not too bad. But what intrigued me about this movie is that <clears throat> the the kind of the premise of the movie is how much would you do to save one person? Mm. Hmm. That's a bioethical question. Yeah, kind of a mm-hmm. kind of an interesting question. And so so it's wrestling with lots of very interesting ethical challenges because at one point they have to decide okay, do we uh do we risk the life 
of one person uh, and do a high-risk maneuver for them or do we do a low-risk maneuver for five people? Hmm. Got it. Well, that's kind of an interesting challenge. And and, uh, I'm not going to give away their answer to that. But I think that that question, what are you willing to do for one person, is – Boy, you want to talk about a segue into some really good uh, ethical discussions and theological discussions of how much how much is God willing to do for one for one person? So I think that there is a lot to be said about this uh, about this movie. I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but you need to go see it, and uh, all of our listeners do because I think that there's a lot of potential there. I read the book this summer and just loved it. Yeah, yeah, and and it's really pretty. It's pretty faithful to the book, I would okay. say. It's okay. it, you know they, they take a couple shortcuts, but they are not shortcuts that sort of tear apart the plot. So, okay, good. so, good. Um, so that and that's okay. I, I I was really pleased with it. It was a lot of fun. So I went and saw it with my daughter. Had a father daughter date. So nice. that was a good nice. time, definitely. Well, anything else, my friend, before you uh, tear off into parts unknown and go check out Frozen Embryonic Adoption? Yeah, no, I'm I'm good. I'm going to go teach this uh, around noon, and then I'm going to go and hit the airport. Awesome. Well, safe travels, my friend. And thank you to all of our listeners. We will see you next time.